Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope your week is getting off to a real kick. Uh, Hope you're focusing on uh, mental health. How is your mental health doing? Hope you're answering that uh, honestly. And also asking those around you, hey, how's your mental health? That's how we check in on people. That's how we let people know that we're safe to talk about mental health with and also kind of normalize that discussion, which is very, very important. Again, we have a lot of shame around questions like that. So um, ask yourself, how's my mental health? Maybe make that a loving question to those that you care about and feel close to. Ask them, hey, how's your mental health been today, this week? It's a really good way to start to build more intimacy and closeness. And again, let people know that you're one of those individuals that can tolerate hearing that. That's how we save ourselves. That's how we save other people. And more importantly, that's how we really, really bond. I love that. Um, Let's get into some news though. Ikea, they're being sued by the Polish government. And that's because they fired a homophobe who told a colleague that gay people deserved death. Um, Look, y'all keep your homophobia to yourself. Companies don't want it anymore. Neither do, you know, individuals. I'm all about that. You know, if you are spreading hate and violence, companies, um, networks, all different sorts of platforms have a right to say, yeah, not here, not, not anymore, man. Uh, go educate yourself, do better or keep your thoughts to yourself. That's violent. And yeah, it's not also just bad for the company. So I'm glad we don't, that we don't live in a time anymore where you can just kind of spew such things. Why? Well, here's another example. Why a gay grandpa, I don't even know what that means was blackmailed by the threat of being outed on grinder. The unnamed victim went to the police and the young blackmailer was arrested in a sting operation. Now that's horrible. So a gay grandfather in England was terrified because someone younger that he met on Grinder was saying he was going to blackmail him. Um, that's what my point is. We live in a homophobic culture still, right? The video, uh, the documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, which is absolutely heartbreaking and everyone needs to watch it. We need to raise more awareness around LGBTQIA violence. And that, you know, documentary shows how in Russia you can be murdered and brutalized for being gay. It's heartbreaking. We have so much work to do. We need to start really continuing to call out homophobia, transphobia, all sorts of things because it is still illegal in some places and punishable by death for being gay or trans. So much work to do, but homophobia still exists in places like here in the U S um, But as just evidence, that story, that was something that took place over in the UK. Now, examples of homophobia that are still happening in the US is, let's say, how the uh, Trump, his senior advisor, tweeted support for conversion therapy. Well, that's disgusting because the American Psychological Association has said that that is not only not something that's productive, it actually causes mental damage and leads to suicidality. But nonetheless, his senior advisor, Jenna Ellis, the bigot, tweeted her support for conversion therapy and also has attacked LGBTQIA people on her on her Twitter. Why is that being allowed? How's that person being put into a position of power? Well, because we have Donald Trump as our president and he's a bigot himself. And so things like that are allowed. But my point is, we still are in a cultural moment where homophobia, folks, is alive and well. And uh, got so much more work to do. So what does that mean? It means shutting down homophobic and transphobic jokes, right? Not letting people use problematic language around you. Uh, Making sure representation exists. Making sure that 
gays and trans individuals are included in marketing and PR in storylines in the classroom, talking about gay individuals throughout history and the great things that they've brought to our culture, um, social advancements, letting teachers be openly gay, letting characters on television be gay, letting straight individuals have more encounters and familiarity with gay individuals, talking about it, acknowledging that it exists, changing sex education to include gay-based sex education. I mean, that is how we create cultural change is inclusion, right? First, you get people just familiar and tolerant around such things. That's the first step. And you do that by talking about it, by showing it. Then they start to move into the stage of acceptance where they're like, okay, uh, they might not support it, but they'll accept it, meaning they'll allow it, they'll acknowledge it. And then the final stage that we need to get to is celebration, where we realize it's actually good to be gay. It's not just okay, it's actually good. I actually celebrate it. I actually am not minding it. I actually don't mind acknowledging it, welcoming it, being a part of it, right? And that's why I laugh when they have the heterosexual pride, because every day is heterosexual pride, right? Like that's everything, everywhere, every space is centered in that, every movie, every song. And so just carving out some space to honor LGBTQIA identity is really important. Um, and it, again, saves lives. Like individuals are actually healed. Studies show having one supportive individual in the life of someone who's gay, someone who's gay's life, having one supportive individual can decrease suicidality dramatically. And the LGBTQIA community still has one of the highest suicide rates. And that is because of oppression and violence, uh, continued lack of acceptance. And so let's center that, you know, moving through the rest of the year, always, but especially moving through the rest of the year. Let's make that really a goal and a priority. And uh, let's vote out Trump. <laughs> like that's a key component because he's rolled back LGBTQIA rights uh, dramatically and continues to. So, uh, all right, coming up next, we're going to be talking about social media literacy. And that's important because social media is a powerful part of our mental health, but also all of our lives for many many hours a day. In fact, my phone scares me sometimes when it tells me how many hours I've been on my phone. <laughs> it's taunting me. All right, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And now it's time to talk about some social media literacy. So listen, our psychology, our mental health is an open system, meaning it's always absorbing. It's always being impacted. It's always in motion. And everything you surround yourself with, everything you read, everything you listen to, conversations you have, conversations you're part of, things you look at, impact your mental health. It's an open system. And we spend many, many hours a day in our social media and media of all kinds. And it's just now that we're really starting to pay attention to the impact it has on our mental well-being. And we can use it to remove some issues. We can also use it to really promote higher functioning, more well-being, more joy, more happiness. And uh, I have a really great graphic that I use when I travel the country lecturing and training in this training program that I'm a part of. And it has this individual sitting in front of a television and you can see this thing coming out of the television going into his brain. And it really just demonstrates how, you know, well, this is actually one of the things I say, and, and I mean this, I say, show me your social media and you show me your psyche. Show me what you follow on social media and you show me your mental health because we're constantly taking it in. It's really setting up scripts for us. It's showing us ideals, norms, values. And um, if it's reflecting back who we are and how we wanna believe, then all's well. But if it's constantly telling us we need to be something different, something other than what we are, then that's a way that it's working against us, right? So technology, such as social media and our cell phones and whatnot, are not neutral tools, meaning they're not neutral. They have an impact, right? And again, we're looking at is it positive or is it negative? How can we harness it to benefit us, right? Because we do have control over what we create. We do have control over what we post. We do have control over what we continue to empower by supporting it by following it, by liking it, by putting our money behind it. So we often are maintaining and strengthening the same systems, ideals, or norms that we also keep ourselves trapped in. And so the work's about using your social media in a more therapeutic way, what you post, what you follow. And I want people to analyze what they're posting and what they're following, right? Because we have control over that. We have power over that. We empower 
certain norms and ideals and values, but I want it to be reciprocated, meaning what are we putting out there that impacts others and what are we following that impacts us? What are we allowing? Because we can change that. So the work is about, and this is on some of my social media if you want to really follow the transcript, but the question first is what's the message? What's my message? What's their message? What are they telling me covertly or overtly? What are they telling me directly or indirectly? When I'm looking at this, what is it saying? If it could speak, what would it say? That matters. What are they promoting? Because everything's a promotion of something. Everything's a communication of something. Either they're just saying, this is what I value, or this is what I think is meaningful, or it's a literal promotion. But look at what are they trying to get across? Um, is it marginalizing anyone? Because often some of these things are marginalizing people. They're leaving someone out, or they're oppressing someone. Who are they marginalizing? Is it inclusivity-based? Do I feel brought in? Or do I feel left out as a result of following this or looking at this? Or what you're posting? Is what I'm posting telling some individual that they don't have worth or they don't exist? Am I centering my privilege? Am I using my platform to heal? Am I following things that are healing? Some of these platforms are just utilizing or relying upon exclusionary privileges. They're maintaining this idea that there's a certain way of being in the world. Do you feel shamed by it? Are you shaming anyone with what you're posting? I love that as an assessment tool. After I look at it, where I'm done scrolling, do I feel better or worse? Do I feel more shame or less shame? Follow things that make you feel better. Follow things that make you feel less shamed, not more shamed. It's our social media. It should bring you joy and happiness. It should make you feel better. Use that technology and that tool for enhancement. Does it tell you you need to be different? Is it implying that you're not okay as you already are? Because that's not going to help with your mental health. You want to be following things and posting things that tell people, you know what? It's okay to be your age. It's okay to be your body shape or size. It's okay to be, have different abilities. Having disabilities still means you have worth and value and desirability, right? Like all these factors matter. Does it empower or disempower? Does it shrink you down or expand you, right? How do you feel before? How do you feel during? How do you feel after? I want people to ask that about everything. Dates, sex, time with family members and friends. That's how we assess the impact it's having on us. How do we feel before when we think about engaging it or going on? How do we feel during and after? If when you think about going into social media, you feel anxious or bad already, well, that's a problem. That means it's not a tool that's enhancing. How do you feel while you're swiping around? And again, more importantly, how do you feel after? And that lets us know what changes need to be made in terms of the sex we're having, the kind of sex, who we're having sex with, the people we're dating, maybe even your boyfriend or husband. How do I feel when I see them calling or when I'm on my way home? How do I feel when I'm with them? How do I feel after I've been with them? Better, worse? I had to use that for some friends in my life where I realized they, they're draining. When I see them calling, I'm already exhausted and I haven't even answered yet. During the phone call, I notice that I'm feeling frustrated. Afterwards, I feel depleted. But it doesn't mean we just remove things or people. Sometimes the work is about having difficult conversations and saying, hey, I want it to be more of a positive experience when we engage each other or we need to have sex differently. I'm often left feeling depleted or uncomfortable. It's because I'm not speaking up. I don't want to have the sex we're having or I want to have it differently, right? Or if it's a relationship, maybe you need to say, look, I've been misleading you. I've been implying that I'm okay with it being casual, but I'm actually looking for something more serious. And so I feel abandoned after we hang out. I think I need to exit or I need to ask for something more serious and committed, right? Because sometimes we're misleading others because we're not speaking up and we're not letting them know that we want something other than what's happening. And remember, relationships are flexible so we can change and shift what we're centering, what the rules are, what the labels are, what the structure is. Same with our social media. Unfollow the things that make you feel bad and promote being other than what you are and start following the things that are like, hey, you're awesome the way you are. Hey, the body you have is perfect. Or let's not even worry or consider our bodies, right? Um, and also same things with relationships. Tell your friends. Let's not be the kind of friends that are constantly talking poorly about others and gossiping. Let's be an empowered-based group that talks in a positive way about ourselves and others so that we leave feeling better off and not depleted and judged, right? Like all these things matter, you know? So do the work, you know, you matter. That's the goal. Coming up next, we're going to talk about mental illness and how the goal of mental illness or mental health and well-being isn't about being normal. That word is really judgmental and a pejorative. It's about just being you. We're going to break that down. Listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And now we're going to talk about mental illness and mental health. Listen, we have this word normal. Everyone wants to be normal. It's the number one goal a lot of children and youth have. I just want to be normal. I want to be like everyone else. It's like first phase of life stuff, right? Where we just want to fit in. 
conformity and assimilation are the goal. We want to look like everyone. Looking different isn't cool or fun. But hopefully in adulthood, we move towards more mental health. It's about just being ourselves, being authentic, being liberated, being honest, being free, being true. And that will often mean not fitting and not being conformist driven, right? So check that. Second phase of life, adulthood, whenever that emerges or happens, is about not trying to strengthen the ego anymore. It's not about the money you have or the car you drive or the label or title. It's now about your legacy, the meaning and value of what you're doing with your time in your life. Do you like what you're leaving your legacy? Do you like what you're spending all your time doing? Do you like the impact you're having in the world? Does your life bring you meaning and joy? We don't use words like normal or conformity, but psychology is obsessed with those things. But it shames health because health often is about living outside norms and values of our culture. Because remember, our culture has a lot of problematic norms and values. We think everyone needs to be white, Western Eurocentric beauty standards. Everyone needs to be white with straight hair, lighter skin, the better. Everyone needs to be gym bodied, fight aging, look as young as possible, dye the grays, do anti-aging creams, you know, have to have a gym body. You have to take all these unhealthy chemicals and protein powders. Um, what else? You have to be cisgendered. You have to be male or female. And you have to be masculine if you're quote unquote male identified and feminine if you're female and never step outside of those things. And you better be married and you better be monogamous. Otherwise, you're not serious or committed. And you better make a lot of money because it's all about classism. Because if you center your life around pleasure and joy and rest, then we think you're lazy and not productive. I mean, think about those values. Values. That's a mess, right? That is not what life is supposed to be about. And that's absolutely what mental health is not about. And so often going after mental health is to be a renegade, a rebel in our culture. I mean, I've seen that just working as a psychologist for over 15 years, that often the work is about people pushing outside of those expectations that as a woman or a woman of a certain age in our culture, you don't need to be married or have a child. And if not, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. I saw that happen with my older brother when he got out of a serious relationship. People are like, oh, someone's going to think something's wrong with you if at your age you're not married. Really? Well, that's a very unhealthy, toxic person person that's too conformist. You know what I mean? People that have health don't think in those terms, but we use these studies to find statistical averages and everyone lives on the front end or back end of that. No one really meets that average and you don't need to, but in mental health, it's all about being normal. And I saw that come up. A friend of mine posted on her Facebook page, a story of someone with an alternative sexuality and everyone started mocking and laughing. And I thought, wow, look at all these people that have so much work to do and are, are punishing this person for just living their life in the most honest way. And in our culture, them living that life is actually far more rooted to mental health than the people uncomfortable with it or mocking it. So the people calling him unhealthy were the unhealthy ones. They were so uncomfortable with someone living their honest, authentic life, and they needed to publicly shame and attack. So remember, when someone's using the word normal, and I don't even know what that means, because usually it's rooted in all those problematic things I just listed, say to them, that is not the goal. That is not mental health. To live to be adjusted in our unhealthy culture is not the goal. That's not health, right? And there really is no standard, you know? And it's often rooted in a lot of judgment and discrimination because the work in mental health and relational health and sexual health is creativity and diversity because that's how the world works. Remember, when we look at the plant and animal kingdom, they see that as a strength. Diversity is good. But in a human culture, we like conformity, but that's actually bad for us. That doesn't help us produce art, right? Art is rooted in creativity and diversity. We need that. We need to value that. But we label it. We shame it. I remember when I was in high school, I was a punk rock kid and I was getting tattooed and wearing all black and culture couldn't handle that. Now it's cool. Now it's easy. You know, but back then it was very rebellious and problematic. I remember my parents saying I couldn't go out for dinner with them unless I was going to wear some color. Why did the color of the clothing I chose to wear have anything to do with my worth or value or whether or not as a good person or my character? I was always a good person and that shouldn't matter. In fact, in our culture, me being willing to live my life the way I wanted to live it was actually a sign of greater mental health than the people that were wearing what everyone was told to wear. And so I want everyone to just feel more comfortable in their individuality, you know, in their creativity and their beautiful diversity. We need more of that. Um, we want people to live their lives honestly. And that's why I love the movement right now in gender diversity where people are saying, you know, I'm trans or I'm non-binary. I love it. We're pushing on the boundaries. Everything's bigger than these two options only, male or female, straight or gay, um, friend or, you know, committed monogamous partner. So much of life really lives in those in-between spaces, but we tend to shame and pathologize that. But that's where a lot of beauty and health lives. That's where... It's where more honesty lives, you know? 
so we're going to keep working on that. Question night, it's up on our Loveline IG page and the story. So weigh in on that. We'll be breaking that on down later in the show, as well as talking about whether or not taking selfies is really rooted in narcissism. I love that debate. Uh, but coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. So if you got a question for us, drop them in our Loveline IG DMs, always answering them confidential and anonymously. And uh, whenever you ask a question, it might be someone else who's wondering the same thing. And it also helps us all kind of get some gems and get a little gold out of it. So drop your questions in there. Uh, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And now let's talk about body image. Oh man, this has been something I talk a lot about because I feel like these days a lot of mental health is really tied to our relationship to our body. And as we as we talk about the impact or the intersections of these different uh, mental health themes, they all tie in, right? So our mental health is impacted by our relationship to our body, our sexuality. Our sexual health is impacted by our relationship to our body and our mental health. Our self-esteem is all of these things tied up and, and the impact they have on us in general. Again, we can't move through the world as competent, successful people when we feel bad about things that turn us on, when we feel bad about our sexual orientation, when we feel bad about our gender, when we feel bad about our body. We just can't. And so all these things are what add up to us being our best. And when I see studies saying that nearly 60% of gay men are unhappy with their body, that is horrifying. And this these numbers apply to straight men as well. It's not a gay issue. It's not just a female identified issue. That's heartbreaking. And the question in the study is just how happy are you with your body? And I want everyone's answer to be something more along the lines of, I don't even know. I don't even think about it. I'm too focused on Am I leading a life that's meaningful? I'm too focused on, am I being a good partner or parent? I'm too focused on everything else. Am I finding joy in my life? Our bodies should be neutral. It shouldn't be something that determines our worth, how good we feel, our mood. It's a vehicle, but we've framed it as an achievement that your worth is tied to the kind of body you have or you've achieved. We need to get to body neutrality where it doesn't matter. It's my vehicle. It's what I move around in throughout the day. Yes, I got to take care of it, but it shouldn't matter what it looks like. And a lot of fitness talk is actually about aesthetics, not actually about health or fitness because health and fitness would be my heart rate, my capacity to run long distances, um, my bone density because of weightlifting, my ability to be flexible, all these different factors that we can't see. You can't see it. We don't send our doctor a shirtless pick for our physical. He has to actually listen to our heart and our lungs, take our blood pressure. That is health. And we've tied it to the visual and that's a problem. So 49% reported feeling unhappy. That is far too high. 10% said very unhappy. So we're now almost at 60% falling in the not so great category. Only 23% said that they were happy. That's, that's not good enough. Now, now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We put an emphasis not just on having a gym body, but also on youthfulness. And so there's ageism tied in here where we're not allowed to value our aging body right? Which is always going to move away from the vision we have of how we're supposed to look. We don't have good role models or good visual representations of an aging body or a non-gym body as being beautiful or being healthy, right? Um, we also fat shame. I still see it in magazines. People talking about other people's weight gain, weight loss, cellulite, stretch marks. That's, that's so toxic for us and for them, right? Um, you know, again, even on the dating apps, we hear people stigmatizing uh, it's, it's everywhere. I can't really even drive down the street without seeing it on billboards and ads on television in songs. It's really insidious. And again, remember it matters because all of our worth is tied into that. And I posted, and this was my God, I posted a photo that some other person had posted of themselves and they were just really celebrating themselves. And it was a girl and she had a lot of cellulite and it was really heartbreaking to see the comments people posted on it. This person is happy. This person is healthy. This person is quite, you know, uh, what's the word? Like just living their life to the fullest. Like you could tell that there's a lot of joy and just listening people's unwillingness or inability to keep their negativity to themselves, to not target an attack. And it's just like, wow, of all the things you took in, in looking at that photo, that's where your mind went. That says everything about you and not about them. That says everything about the work you have left to do. That says everything about what you struggle with. That also says everything about what you think is most meaningful or valuable in a person. My first thought was she looks so happy. I'm so glad. I see so many people that aren't. I'm glad she's happy. I wonder what she's doing that's making her so happy. That's where my first thought went. But everyone else's was generally about her cellulite. 
Like, what have we done? What are we continuing to do that we've created a world where that even matters? Where we think we can attack, where we think we have a right to publicly attack over that? Where we even notice that? Let's get away from noticing that. Let's not care. And not everyone likes my opinions on this, but part of that is let's not keep posting our gym selfies because that keeps us trapped and everyone else trapped. Let's stop doing that. We have these social media pages where it's just photo after photo of the same person in their underwear. Take that down. Lead with something else. Market some other aspect of yourself. And if you don't feel great about something else, sit with what that means or why that is. But like, let's stop making the best part that we have to offer or the most valuable part of us is our body or our gym body. Let's get photographers and fashion designers and, and producers and casting individuals to start using all different size bodies. Like that's what the work is. That's liberation. That's honesty. That's mental health. Like I'm personally burnt out myself and I've done enough work where I'm not as bothered, but I still have body dysmorphia. I'm in our culture. It's really hard to escape our culture and not have some worth tied to that or some struggle within that because we're all socialized around it. But we do have control. Remember, anything that we socially create, like norms, values, and ideals, we they're, they're, they have a flexibility to them. We have the ability to water them down, to remove them, to limit them, to get rid of them. Let's take that power back. Right. So if you have a large platform, really look at what are you promoting and leading with? And are you hard? Are you helping culture and helping people? Or are you hurting them? It's it's just so toxic. And it really bums me out. And I even see people in the therapy field that are just posting the photos like that. And I'm like, are you even aware of yourself? What are you communicating to potential clients that are wanting to work on their stuff or learning how to love their body that doesn't fit? that standard or norm. Like it's, it's, it's quite, it's disappointing. I, 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 that kind of stuff really lets me know who's doing the work and who's not. And again, it's time to be better. You know what I mean? If not now, I don't know what will be the wake up call. So let's take a, a look at kind of what we're doing. Um, we're going to talk about that on tomorrow's show. Actually, we're going to be talking about social media literacy and just having a better learning uh, moment and, and, and a better understanding of lens on social media and how to better navigate it. So that'll be on tomorrow's show. But um, question of the night, it's coming up next. So still a little more time to weigh in on that. And they'll be doing some DMs. Um, all right, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. Now we're going to talk about the intersections of selfies and narcissism and mental health. So it's always assumed that people that take a lot of pictures of themselves or selfies are narcissists, right? People that are a little too focused on themselves. And the studies show that that can be true in some cases and not true in other cases. But, you know, studies always show that. <laughs> they can really pretty much support anything you're looking to have them support. Um, and when they were looking at the differences in men and women, the study that I'm looking at now was showing that women tend to take pictures more in groups and men more alone, which is odd. But the problem in that is were the men gay, were the men straight, were the women trans or cis, what race were they from, what class, like all that matters. And so the minute you hear a study just saying men are women, it's like, oh my God, okay, all these other intersecting identities of theirs matter and I need to know what the population was because I need to be able to break that on down. Were they black, were they white, were they gay, were they straight, were they trans, like that matters. So that study doesn't really give me anything. But I wanna say it like this, look, some people that are of some kind of marginalized or exploited, or exploited identity, whether they're fat bodied or they're non-white or they're not uh, cisgendered, it's a really powerful act of health healing and revolution to take selfies and post them. Because when you're living in a world that says only people that are deemed desirable have a right to expose themselves and show themselves, that keeps us all trapped. I wanna see more pictures of older bodies. I wanna see more pictures of fat bodies, trans bodies, bodies with body hair, whether they're male or female presenting. That is what's liberatory. That's what helps heal us. That's what's more honest. And so the consist, the constant encountering of only a certain type of person putting out a photo or taking a photo is problematic. And so again, marginalized, exploited individuals taking lots of photos of themselves is often a form of therapy for them. Them saying, I have a right to occupy space. I have a right to be seen. I have a right to demonstrate and show myself. I have a right to not have to hide. I don't have to be ashamed. And that's why I find it so beautiful when larger bodies are shirtless on the beach or in a bathing suit. They're saying, I don't need to cover up in shame. I don't need to hide. I'm allowed to hold space and exist. I'm allowed to be seen. And it's so healing and transformative for some people to start to show parts of their bodies, scars, 
uh, cellulite, whatever it is, that's healing. But we often only see a certain kind of person that meets these ideal standards taking photos. For them, it might be narcissistic. And, and for them, it might also be them strengthening these problematic norms that we all are buckling under the weight of. But someone taking a lot of photos is gonna have a lot of different meanings. Also, like with sexting. Sexting comes from a different source depending on who the person is. For some people, it's an, it's an attempt to feel good and desirable in their body. For some, it's to court and get the attention of others. For some, it's because it turns them on. And for yet others, they're practicing the stages of courtship and romance and flirtation, and they're learning. They're finding out about how desirable they are, or they're trying to build intimacy and connection. And so we never know what's behind someone's behavior, right? We always need to ask more questions. We always need to find out, like, maybe there's something healing in it. And that's why I, I always cringe when I see people problematizing the use of social media or selfies, because you don't know what psychological mechanism it might be compensating for or strengthening, you know? And there's certain people in my practice where that's their work, to show more of themselves publicly and on social media, to occupy space, to lean in, not lean out, right? And it can be healing for others to see that. And I see those comments. People say it all the time to me when I hold space for people that are disabled to be sexual and attractive. They say, thank you. It's very healing to see that. Or when I challenge aging and saying that we don't need to be anti-aging. In fact, we can't. We need to normalize aging and also normalize finding it desirable and beautiful. And they say, Dr. Chris, thank you. I woke up and I read that and that made me feel good about myself. Or normally I struggle in that way. Or I say things like, wear whatever you want. Don't dress for your size. That's not real or honest. There's no, there's no rules. Wear what you want. Real, wear what makes you happy. Let's break out of these confines. And so for some people, taking a photo of their body is part of that social justice work. These different accounts of, I was just looking at one earlier today of someone who's and identifies as disabled and she was posting very sexual erotic photos of herself. And it was so healing to the disabled community to see that. And it also helped normalize it for people that are able-bodied and normally write off the erotic capacities of different kinds of abilities in the world. Um, it's, it's good for all of us. We all need to, again, be exposed to differences and things challenging these very rigid, like monolithic forms of beauty. And, you, you know, art needs to accommodate that. Um, but this is also where we go back to when I was talking about social media literacy, where we get to use our social media as a way to be therapy. It really, really can. All technology, as we talked about in an earlier segment, um, can be used in service of our journey or in service of social justice. And I want everyone to really look at what their social media is, what, like what role it's playing in all of that. And maybe how can you harness it more towards the deficits or where you have shame and kind of push through that. Because remember, shame is maintained in hiding and withdrawing. Shame wants us to retreat. And the way we work through shame is exposure and showing and leading with, leaning into, not hiding. Hiding it doesn't help us develop comfort, seeing it, feeling it, or having it seen, right? Because shame is a social emotion. Uh, we have to socially work through that. So sit with that. It's important stuff. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about the uh, topic of emotional cheating. What is it? right? What is it? It's also misused and misapplied. So we'll be breaking that on down. And then question of the night. So still some time to weigh in on that. Listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. Question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG page and the stories weighing on that. That's there every night. Uh, make your voice heard. Speak truth to power y'all now's your chance also sliding on into those dms on our love line page as well if you got a question a thought a comment look it's free game anything anything and i uh, hope you're checking out my live stream show i'm listening live that is on all the radio.com handles twitter facebook youtube uh go back check out past episodes it's always a celebrity and an expert talking about all things mental health and covid and what's really beautiful about it is that we have conversations that the celebrities often don't get to have where we're talking about their mental health self-care how they're managing it's it's you know it's not just about their projects and they really 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 like that it's very vulnerable it's beautiful so that's on thursday nights live streams at 5 p.m pacific that's 8 p.m eastern and like i said go back check out all the past episodes and a uh, love line you want to go back check out old love lines binge post share check out something again it's podcasted at wearechannelq.com and also radio.com so um yeah it's all out there um emotional cheating it's one of those buzzwords or concepts that 
I cringe often because of the way people perceive it. Because remember, we're always trying to find the balance between what's a healthy relationship and what's a toxic one. And we've used this word before. Some people, the way they run their relationships just aren't really healthy or sustainable. And it's the rules or regulations that they apply, the way they've been socialized to think it should go. And so it's not that the people aren't healthy, it's that they have these really bad expectations. And we use the word toxic monogamy, which means the way we run our monogamous relationship, excuse me, it's the way that we sometimes run our monogamous relationships are toxic for us and maybe for them. So emotional cheating, listen, we're allowed, even in a marriage or a long-term relationship, we're allowed to have privacy and boundaries. And we're also allowed to have friendship. We're allowed to have friends that we go to for certain intimacy needs met that maybe our partner can or won't. We don't have to get every need met from our primary romantic partner. And that's part of where we break out of toxic forms of monogamy, where people think, oh my God, no, your romantic partner, your primary partner should be your source of everything. Really? Why? That also limits who you can be with. But if you realize I'm allowed to have friends and that they can provide things my partner doesn't, then more people get to exist in your life. Your partner shouldn't buckle under the weight of being your best friend and your therapist and your lover and your sex partner and your romance partner. That's a mess. doesn't need to be like that. You can go to your romance partner for romance and sex and certain forms of intimacy and then talk to your best friend about deep things. But some people call having a friendship, aka some emotional intimacy, as cheating. And, and I think that that's very toxic and unhealthy and also just not fair. Um, so you have to really, really unpack, like, what is the, what do I think is right and wrong? And is there damage, right? Because you're allowed to be emotionally intimate with other people and often emotional cheating, which can be a form of cheating. And if you've, you know, committed to monogamy, first off, let me say this. If you've committed to monogamy and it's a big struggle for you or it's not working, then maybe you're not built for it and be honest and open and share that and talk about other options. But if you're going to do it, you want to discuss with your partner what monogamy means, right? Because everyone has a different definition and some people might be accused of cheating when for them, no, what they're doing actually isn't cheating to them. So we all need to talk about this word we use. So if you're going to be in a monogamous relationship, make sure you say, what, what do you define as being monogamous? Because some people are down with things that other people aren't, but they never talked it out. And this is one of those things. I want people to say, look, I reserve the right to have friends of all different genders. I want to be able to be friends with my exes because again, I'm assuming you're in a relationship with someone you trust that trusts you and you want to be able to have intimacy with them. You want to be able to sit down and have deep talks with them. Now, I don't want people lying, but privacy is different. But lying is when you purposefully withhold. Lying is when you create damage. Lying is when you break trust. So I want partners to know that you have friends. Partners know that maybe you have deep conversations with them. You know what I mean? It's it's the it's the damaging part that we want to get away from, right? We don't want to break trust. We don't want to lie. We don't want to keep secrets. We don't want to manipulate. And so we want to be open about who we're talking to, who we're texting, because if you're lying about having friendships or texting people or certain people, you have to figure out, is it my shame or is it my partner's shame? Is it that I'm being unhealthy or is my partner unhealthy in their expectations and what they try to allow or not allow in my life? Because healthy relationships, everyone's in on the rules and regulations and boundaries. We're not told, we agree. And if you feel like you're being told to do things, you need to reorient that power and say, listen, I want to agree with things, but I'm not going to be told because relationships aren't about ownership. Relationships aren't about never disappointing or frustrating or letting down our partner. That's not realistic and that's not life. And so you want to maintain the relationships you maintain, but we should be in relationships that our, our friendship should be supportive. Let me say it like this. I'm going to assume that if you're in a relationship that's romantic, that it's with someone who's healthy and worthy of trust. I'm assuming that, which means our friendships should be ones that are supportive of our partners and relationships. And if they're not, you need to look at who's the issue, the friend or the relationship. Is my friend really pointing out a problem that I'm not willing to honor? Because um, if not, then all's well, right? So you really want to break down like what is the, what is the true issue? But again, be very thoughtful about the use of emotional cheating because it can be misapplied to someone just having a close relationship with a friend. And we're allowed to do that. Not everyone can be everything and certain friends can provide things partners can't. So we don't want to hold secrets and I want us to all be in relationships where we don't need to. We can openly say, hey, I'm having dinner with this person. You don't need to lie about who or lie that it's happening at all. They can know who you're texting. Maybe they've met your friends. They know who these people are. But the idea that going to a friend for a need to get met is codependence or emotionally cheating isn't, isn't a good model for that. And so that's why I don't use the word emotional cheating. I just don't use words like that. I use words like, what kind of commitment have you made? Are you honoring that? Are you breaking trust? Is what you're doing in service of health? Is it harming anyone? I use words that are more centered in the actual impact and intent. 
uh, but just these cliche words like emotional cheating are very often misapplied and they can sometimes just come from our anxiety where we'll use it to label something that we're uncomfortable with, but we don't really go deep enough to say, should we even honor that discomfort? Like, is that reasonable? Because sometimes our partner's jealousy isn't reasonable and you don't have to honor it. You're allowed to say, yeah, I hear what you're saying and I know you feel jealous by that, but I can't honor that because I don't think that that's realistic, but I care about you. So I'm here to hear more about it. We can unpack it, but I don't have to acknowledge, I don't have to honor it. I don't have to like you know, remove someone or something from my life because you're uncomfortable. Let's talk more about it. Let's sit longer with it. You know, we'll keep, we'll keep the ball in the air, you know? Uh, all right. Coming up next question of the night, listening to love line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And, um, Question of the night up on our Loveline IG page in the story. So weigh in on that. And uh, DMs, if you got one, send them to me. Go on our Loveline page, slide on in there, drop your questions. Always here to answer whatever you're thinking about. Uh, yeah, they're good questions. I, I, we're really getting the heart of some stuff. So I appreciate everyone's vulnerability and honesty and what they're asking. You know, good stuff. So I wanted to talk about resilience. I, I'm seeing a lot of it, <clears throat> excuse me, being brought up. And I think that's because, you know, we're looking at, well, gosh, we're looking at everything, right? Why are people that are doing well doing well? Impact that isolation and hypochondriasis. People, you know, are overly afraid of illness and mis misdiagnosing or misunderstanding and assessing symptoms, right? We jokingly say, hey, now every time you cough, you're like, oh my gosh, do I have COVID? So there's a lot tied into it. But what's, you know, we see, we talk a lot about resilience, right? And my my reasoning as to why I want to kind of unpack it a little bit more is as I feel like it's it can be misused or misunderstood. I, I'm absolutely all about us looking at those that tend to thrive in our culture those that tend to have more resources than others, those that have more capacities to tolerate struggle and discomfort and trauma more than others. I think a lot can be learned from that. And there are some people that deal far better. But what's on the dark side, or as we say, the shadow side of that is this whole idea that that should be the goal is resilience. But what I really think the work is, is figuring out what's going on that is creating the struggles and issues that require people to have resilience. Let's let's stop blaming the victims of all the issues in our culture and instead zero more in on what we need to do so that people don't have to focus on resilience or be resilient. What if we started creating social conditions that were positive and supportive and again, didn't harm anyone and require us to figure out how to make people more resilient. Because that's what the studies on resilience are. How can we make people more resilient? Well, let's make them not requiring of resilience. Let's make some cultural changes. And that's one of the things that's coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement. And what I wanted to also come out of this period of COVID-19 is us looking at our impact on others. Because resilience is usually needed by people that are victims of social inequality, uh, familial and cultural trauma, institutional violence. So it's people that are dealing with um, exploitation or marginalization due to socioeconomics and race and body size, body size and sexual orientation. And so resilience as a concept, right, can sometimes feel like a mandate for someone to focus more on how can we move on and get over things? And it's like, well, first let's look at what it is we're trying to get everyone to be better than or move on from, right? And it sometimes can shame what is really mental health? And mental health is really being authentic and honest in what's going on for you. You know, the whole purpose of my live stream show, the I'm Listening Live, is to get people to destigmatize mental health. And we do that by talking about our mental health, right? I want people to feel comfortable discussing their depression and their anxiety. But resilience can sometimes be misread as this idea that the goal should really be to be better than that or to be stronger than that and not to have a weakness or not to live from it or not to show it. But that's not mental health and that's not honest, right? And I want people to feel their grief, their loss, their trauma. Even in the field of grief and loss, we we focus people we focus the work on getting people over things, and it's like, well, instead we need to work with them on learning how to be a companion to their own journey, right? And so resilience can sometimes, as a topic or concept, shut down vulnerability or full emotional expression, and that is not mental health, right? So it can be used almost the way we talk about 
toxic positivity, to look on the bright side or to look at the strengths, right? And we can, another term for that is emotional bypassing, where instead of just going into the truth of what's going on, your struggle, your vulnerability, your sadness, we try to avoid that by looking at the silver lining or focusing on the positive. And it's like, but that's not always honest. That's not even real because not everything has a positive outcome or strength component tied to it, right? Not everyone recovers. And so resilience can sometimes be tied to like toxic recovery rhetoric, which is this idea that we do heal and move on from things, but we often don't. And when they say that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that's not often true. That which doesn't kill you sometimes makes you more traumatized and weaker. And we don't recover from loss often. Like I know when I lost my father, I'll never get over that. And I don't need to, and I'm not supposed to. That was a that was a life reorienting event that will always be with me. I will always remember that and have feelings tied to that. And my and I think of my mother. Her life is permanently made different in a lot of really bad, negative, dark ways. And that's true and that's honest, and it will remain. And she won't get over it. She'll learn to live with it. And that's what the work is. And resilience times implied that there's something wrong with us just learning to live with, but that we have to be better than or get beyond. And I just don't believe that that's true. And that could be very victim blaming. That's also tied to when I talk a lot about the problem with capitalism, this idea that our worth and value or mental health is tied to our ability to be functional and productive. And that's not what mental health is rooted in. Mental health is rooted in our quality of life. Mental health is rooted in us being authentic and honest and liberated in who we are, what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. I don't want people to harden or toughen or to, or to like glaze over things, sit in your weakness. That's, that's also intimacy is when we're able to show and bear our weaknesses or our, our, our vulnerability to another and them to us. That's when we feel like we've actually connected and gotten close to someone. And so instead I want us to not be resilient. I want us to be authentic. I want us to be soft. I want us to be in our grief and express it. I want us to be emotional, right? I want us to allow all changes and all feelings. Be patient with who you are and where you are. Like it's allowing. And so I want us to reframe that. Don't be strong, be real. Don't be strong, focus on self-care. Don't be strong, be in truth, right? Be where you are. And so the, the expectation of resilience can sometimes itself be like a trauma. And that's why I love these buzzwords. Like it's okay to not be okay. Be where you are. We don't have to always rise above or be better than or find a silver lining. That's not real for how some people's lives will be. Some people do have chronically dark, heavy, depressing elements happen to them and in their lives. And we want to honor that, right? Not dismiss that. And so resilience has some worth and value for sure, but I think it can sometimes be a form of bypassing or toxic positivity, right? Looking for the silver lining or trying, trying to get us to be dehumanized and above and beyond wounding or emotion. But that's, that's actually where beauty lies, right? Um, we'll keep talking more about it though. Um, I think there's something really beautiful in that. Okay, coming up next, we're gonna talk about alcohol. Right? Talking more about that stuff. All right, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. Oh boy, I hope you're all weighing in on question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG and the stories. Also dropping some DMs for us. We'll be getting to that later in the show. Bum bum bum. All right. So alcohol. It's we got a new relationship to it these days. We really do. Love watching those memes. <laughs> but um you know, remember, mental health is about assessing the relationship we have to a lot of different things in our lives, right? And that's the word I use. I try not to use the word addiction. I think it's misunderstood, misused, and not always even applied correctly, or even, or even the right term to describe things. So I always talk about someone's relationship to food, to alcohol, to whatever it is we're talking about, because that, that inherently points out that our relationship can change, that the way we maybe use drugs or alcohol at one point in our lives is not the way we might use it at a different time, and that it's all on a spectrum where some people have a more problematic or chaotic relationship where others less so. And so that's that's how I like to frame it. It also comes very much from a harm reduction model that, um, not, that not everyone needs sobriety or not everyone can get sobriety. Not everyone needs to remove all drugs and alcohol from their lives. Some people maybe just alcohol, others just drugs maybe for a period of time and circle back at another time. Maybe they need to just work on using it differently, right? Changing their relationship to it, having a better relationship or a safer relationship. So that's the question. What's your relationship right now to drugs and alcohol? And, and can you make it uh, have less of an impact on you? Can you make it less harmful? 
Do you need to change your relationship completely where maybe you remove one of them from your life for a length of time or just for right now? And that's what, that's what mental health is, right? Looking at our relationship to things. And right now, a lot of people are using alcohol and drugs, and that's a coping mechanism. Uh, not necessarily self-care, because again, self-care is something that has a positive impact on us, leaves us feeling better off, not bad or worse, doesn't create any conflict, where coping mechanisms often can be things that meet, leave us feeling not the greatest, but they worked in that moment, so they helped us cope for that day, that week, that month, or through that situation, but can have a negative impact afterwards. So what's your relationship right now to alcohol? Do you want to use that as something to dissociate and distract? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. How about your drug use? There is medicinal uses of drugs, whether it's for you know psychedelics, for some kind of alternative experience, transcendent experience, or mental health work. It can also be a, a mood changer, right? We talk about medicinal cannabis and other things. And um, not everyone's gonna have a problem. And what we might have had a problem with in our youth due to trauma might be different now because we now know alcohol is not a disease. Uh, the disease model has been debunked. We don't use that anymore. We now look at it as very much an attachment issue or a trauma response. And that's why people in, in recovery really should be doing trauma work with a therapist and looking at what was it that led me there. Because to just remove drugs and alcohol is not inherently doing anything to some of the trauma that then gets perpetuated in other ways and can traumatize and traumatize your relationships, right? So we always want to look at what, do, what is the trauma what are the issues that maybe led us to use these substances problematically? Because other people use them in a little more of a sustainable, healthier way, right? So that's kind of the work. And there's a complexity to that, right? Because right now, our relationship to a substance might not be the relationship we'd have if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic without access to other coping mechanisms or self-care forms, without access to maybe our friends or some of our other distractions. And so the answer you might have right now might be a different answer that you have at a different time. But when in doubt, take a break. When in doubt, take space, right? Um, I think we should prioritize centering our mental health and our well-being. And, you know, again, we live in a culture that really makes alcohol part of everything. Every holiday has alcohol tied to it. Every celebration, it can feel exhausting. Like it's, an, it's everywhere in every song, in every movie, every time your friends socialize. And so getting away from drugs or alcohol can definitely shift your experience of everything. Holidays, birthdays, monumental moments, right? Also your socialization time, dating becomes different where people start to care if the people they're dating or might date, what they do with their weekends and on things like New Year's, if it is centered in a lot of drugs and alcohol, for them that's not necessarily compatible. Um, I don't drink anymore, and that's something that's really important to me, that I have people around me that can spend time with me without the use of alcohol, because I started to realize that if I needed alcohol to be with someone or to be somewhere, then that wasn't actually a place that was compatible with me, because the places I belong I would feel safe and I'd want to be around and available in a sober way. And if I needed to drink to have fun or to enjoy myself, then it wasn't something that was enjoyable because if it needs the addition of something like alcohol to make it better, then it wasn't good enough on its own. And I pass on things like that. I want to be around people in places where I can just be myself as I am, right? And not needing uh, whatever it is that alcohol can provide. That's not everyone's story, but it might be yours. And so use this time to maybe assess the relationship you have with drugs or alcohol and if there's changes that need to be made. It doesn't mean you have to call yourself sober or get off all of them. Maybe it's just changing your relationship or maybe just removing drugs or maybe just removing alcohol, right? It doesn't have to be this total thing that's a commitment forever. You get to decide what this new relationship is. Um, there's so many options and there's a lot of programs out there, ones that aren't 12 step based that don't require complete abstinence from everything. I know a lot of people that struggle with AA and the 12 steps because they still want to use marijuana because it hasn't been a problem or the issue is drugs and drinking wine sometimes has been very healthy and controllable. And we have to hold space for that, that everyone's definition of sobriety or healthy relationship to drugs or alcohol is going to be different because psychology is different, because people are different, because their needs are different, their trauma is different. And we want to allow for that. So you have to create your own definition, you know? Um, as always, y'all, thanks for hanging out with me. Have a beautiful, beautiful night.